The First Darkness by Mitchell Gibson Copyright 2012 Mitchell Gibson All rights reserved Published in ebook format by ebookit.com HTTP colon slash slash www.ebookit.com ISBN minus 13 978-1-4566-0846-0 No part of this book may be reproduced in any form or by any electronic or mechanical means including information storage and retrieval systems, without permission in writing from the author. The only exception is by a reviewer, who may quote short excerpts in a review. Prologue Melvina struggled to cover herself with the tattered remnants of a shawl that she had stolen from one of the slaves in the lower dungeons. She knew that her situation was hopeless. Melvina and her sister, Sava, were surrounded, desperately attempting to flee from a growing mob of young gladiators that had been set upon them. Sava was barely ten years old. Melvina had hoped to see her eighteenth birthday in a few days. That was before the centurions burned their home, slaughtered her parents and took the two of them captive. Now their lives had been reduced to sport. Sava had been wounded by the first band of men that had rushed toward them. They had been thrown into the arena naked, hungry, and covered in honey. The shawl provided little more than a scant semblance of dignity. Fortunately, Melvina had been able to pick up a broadsword that had fallen onto the ground during the struggle. She had nothing to lose by at least trying to use it. Melvina's brother, Taras, had taught her some rudimentary broadsword fighting moves, but in her dazed and weary state, she had little hope of holding the men off for any significant length of time. Sava was frozen with fear and Melvina circled her sister's body warily. Three men munged at her and she gored one cleanly in the liver with a clumsy but effective strike. The remaining two looked at their fallen comrade for a moment, kicked him aside, and renewed their awkward attack. The crowd grew quiet as they approached. The other slaves scampered away and cleared a path to the two girls. Melvina looked at her sister, smiled, and began swinging the sword in wide circles. Her hand grew sweaty with perspiration as she nervously gripped the handle. The crowd remained deadly quiet. The two men laughed as Melvina quickly tired herself, swirling the heavy broadsword above her head. After a few moments, she could barely lift the sword. Faster than her eyes could follow. One of the men grabbed her throat and yanked her off the ground. Her tiny feet dangled above the dusty Colosseum floor. She dropped the broadsword as she gasped for air. The crowd began a muffled cheer. The young gladiators in training were expected to rape and murder the newly captured slave girls thrown into the arena. The act was considered to be a sort of reward for their hard work. The biggest of the two men grabbed the shawl and threw it to the ground. He pinned Melvina's arms back as his companion ceremoniously removed his tunic. Melvina glanced to her side and saw that Sava was already being ravaged by three new gladiators who had rushed into the fray. White-hot rage began to build within Melvina as she saw her sister screaming in agony as the men seized her body. The three of them grabbed her and attempted to hold her still. In a desperate lunge, Melvina tore her arm away from her attacker and grabbed a small bloody knife that she spied lying half-hidden in the dirt. She thrust the blade into the chest of one of her attackers and then, just as swiftly, cut Sava's throat. Bright spurts of red blood stained Sava's face as she closed her eyes in anguished relief. The crowd roared its disapproval at the sudden turn of events. The larger gladiator tore the knife from Melvina's hand and thrust the blade deep into her stomach.
Melvina spit into his face and fell flat onto the dust of the Colosseum floor. The weight of her attacker's body fell onto her chest. The crowd cackled and cheered as the remaining gladiators flung their dead companion's body aside and took brutal advantage of the fleeting moments of warmth that gradually left the dying girl's frail bodies. Melvina's fragile spirit slowly separated itself from its now lifeless body and floated silently into the cold night air above the arena. She tried to strangle one of the gladiators, but she could not grasp his throat with her spirit hands. She saw her sister's weak spirit energy hovering several feet above her blood-soaked corpse. She willed herself to her sister and grasped her form. Unseen by the cheering crowd, the two spirit forms walked away from the Colosseum floor and disappeared into the silent darkness of the neighboring forest. Chapter 1 The Trouble with Beetles Mitchell sat quietly with his legs crossed in the lotus position on the silk cushion pillow. Kathy, his wife of seven years, was out shopping for groceries, and his children, Tiffany and Michael, had not yet come home from school. He had planned all day for this moment. For the next two hours, with any luck, he would be able to meditate in complete peace and quiet, which was a truly rare commodity in the Gibson household. Mitchell had begun meditating when he was a small boy. At first, meditation was the only way that he could get away from the stress of growing up hungry, cold, and poor in the backwoods country house that he called home. Soon, however, he realized that if he went deep enough, he could escape his body altogether and explore the neighboring cities and towns that his family rarely visited. Sometimes, on his nightly out-of-body sojourns, he would peek in on his brothers, Dennis and Chris, as they slept, and contemplate scaring the living daylights out of them with a ghostly nudge. He also wondered what it would be like to make himself appear to an adult, someone he didn't know, and scare them just for the heck of it. After making the costly mistake of telling his pastor about his meditative exploits, Mitchell's mother beat him with a peach tree switch. He learned to keep his out-of-body travels, and his more mischievous thoughts, to himself. Meditation was to become his very secret getaway from the life that he desperately wanted to escape. His breaths came slowly as he willed himself down into a well-rehearsed trance. His heartbeat slowed evenly and his thoughts still to a calm and placid whisper. He felt his energy begin to center in his chest. The sensation grew to the intensity of a large, white-hot flame that slowly enveloped his entire upper body. Mitchell whirled the energy away from his chest and up into his brain. The energy resisted briefly, but gradually submitted as he redoubled his efforts. After a few furtive moments, the flaming energy mass coalesced and obediently rose to his forehead. Sometimes the energy was more cooperative than others. Over the years, Mitchell had learned to master the art of moving the energy mass to whatever part of his body that he chose. He learned early on that allowing the mass to remain in any part of his body other than the brain was a recipe for trouble. If the energy did not enter the brain, he could not get out of his body. There was no point to meditating if he could not get out of his body. As the flaming energy mass bathed his brain, Mitchell willed his spirit to rise through the ceiling of his home. His spirit rose with practiced ease and floated over the roof. As he floated, he surveyed the forest behind his home. He had grown to love the countryside residence that he and Kathy called home. They had moved to North Carolina from Arizona five years previously. Phoenix was beautiful, but the congestion, smog, and crime had gotten to be a bit too much. Raising two small children was now their priority, and Summerfield, North Carolina, 
population 7018, was perfect in many ways. Mitchell hovered over the thick grove of pines that draped the two-acre plot upon which he had built his home. The April spring air was warm and sweet and it filled his being with peace. There was nothing quite like floating out of one's body. Using his astral vision, he looked back into the meditation room and saw his physical body slumbering peacefully. He wished that he could do this every day. Time, however, did not permit that luxury. Suddenly, he heard a loud explosion. At first, he thought he was hearing the peal of an approaching spring thunderstorm. They were common in North Carolina during this time of the year. He looked up at the sky and saw the fleeting wisps of cloud that dotted the tree line. He dismissed any thoughts of a coming deluge. Then, he heard it again. The thunderous sound turned into a long wail. The noise rippled through his astral form like an explosion. He strained his senses to find the source of the commotion. Amidst the din, he could make out a few words. Help me, I'm trapped. Help me! Help me! Meditation was supposed to be peaceful. The children were not due to return home for at least another two hours, and Kathy had left for the market only minutes before. Her car was not in the driveway. That ruled out family trouble at the source. Mitchell followed the sound and quickly found himself hovering over the rose garden near his front step. He spied a large black beetle lying flat on its back, screaming as loudly as it could. Its legs churned the air furiously. The little creature's lungs were strained to capacity as it shouted and yelled for all to hear. Most humans would never hear the sound. The only reason Mitchell heard the creature's cry for help related to a certain word of power that he had memorized years before. Unfortunately, in his astral form, all of his senses were heightened and the beetle's yell took on monstrous proportions. Mitchell lowered himself down to the beetle. He willed his hand to become solid enough to touch the creature, and he set it upon its legs. The beetle looked at Mitchell, breathed a heavy sigh of relief, and grinned widely at the human who had become his rescuer. I thought I was a goner. This yard is crawling with frogs, birds, and cats. You ought to do something about it, Mitchell. Mitchell could not believe that the beetle knew his name. How do you know my name? Mitchell asked. I've been living in your yard for two years. Don't you think I would have heard your name a few times by now? By the way, thanks for flipping me over. Don't mention it, friend. By the way, what is your name? You couldn't pronounce it. Humans have a hard time with the beetle language. I speak your words a little better than most of my people only because I am brave enough to go into your house on a regular basis. You got the best cookies in your pantry. Oops, guess I said too much, huh? As unsettling as the thought of you eating the cookies in my home might be, the thought of having a conversation with a bug strikes me as a bit more curious. Something tells me that you wanted to get my attention. What's on your mind? Ray. What do you mean Ray? You can call me Ray. Ray the beetle crawled up onto the lower step and began munching on a pink rose petal that had fallen from a nearby blossom. Okay. Now, tell me what's bothering you, Ray. You took a big chance flipping yourself over like that. It's the ants. They're driving everybody in the yard crazy. You know what I'm talking about. Those big, black, hairy suckers that eat everything in sight. And I mean everything. We have been dealing with them in the house as well. 
They don't listen to reason very well. You telling me? They're building these mounds all over the forest out here and nothing is safe. You gotta do something. Ray the Beetle was right. For the last two weeks, Kathy and Mitchell had tried unsuccessfully to deal with the horde of invaders that had begun to call their kitchen home. When people talk about getting rid of black ants, they are generally referring to one of two different species. The first is the carpenter ant. The second is the black soldier ant. Black soldier ants, monomorium minimum, are excruciatingly annoying and fertile pests. A single colony can consist of more than 2,000 ants that are active both day and night. Ants are one of the most single-minded and obsessive creatures on the planet. Mitchell had not been able to find a good word of power that would allow him to negotiate with them without harming the queen or their young. In their opinion, the land, the trees, and the house that Mitchell and his family lived in belonged to them. After all, by their count, they had been there for 26,000 years. According to all their citizens, and Mitchell had spoken to a number of them, they had rights. The Gibson family was lucky that the ants didn't decide to attack en masse and take the yard by force. I don't know what to do about them, Ray. We are looking at some options. Well don't wait too long. I'm planning to reproduce in a few weeks, Mitch. If you know what I mean. I don't want my kids to be ant food. How would you like it if your kids were eaten by a horde of ants? Ray, for a beetle, you have some unsettlingly human elements to your personality. I see your point, however. I will do what I can. Okay, Doc. Sorry for the commotion. I had to get your attention. Somebody had to do something. Ray finished the rose petal that lay on the lower step and began to crawl stealthily toward the larger bush of roses. He glanced at Mitchell and grinned sheepishly. I love these things. Do you mind? Kathy minds, Ray. Take one petal and leave the rest. I will see what I can do. Mitchell heard the phone begin to ring inside the house. He felt the familiar heavy magnetic tug of his body beginning to weigh his astral form down. He knew that he couldn't stay outside of his physical form much longer. We will talk about this in a few days, Ray. And by the way, if my roses are gone, I will know who did it. Quit your worries, I'll spread the word. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Ray the beetle quickly plugged a large, juicy rose petal from the plant and happily trudged off toward an opening under the stairs. Mitchell quickly rose above the steps and flew high into the springtime sky. He surveyed the backyard for a few moments and soon saw the source of Ray's concern. With his astral sight, he was able to see both below and above ground at the same time. Ants, tens of thousands, were messing in the yard. Ray was right. There were a lot of them. Mitchell would need to do something soon. The phone rang again. In a flash, Mitchell rejoined his body, drew in a deep breath, and walked out of his meditation room to the downstairs counter. He looked at the number flashing on the caller ID. This call needed to be answered. Hello? This is Dr. Gibson. Mitch, thank God. I was about to hang up. This is Gerald. Detective Sergeant Gerald Holmes was an old friend of Mitchell's. They were best friends from Mitchell's UNC Chapel Hill days. Gerald was responsible for more than a few raucous parties in their dorm. He had straightened his life out over the past few years and was now the lead detective in the Homicide Division of Greensboro, North Carolina. 
Hello Gerald, I was out in the yard trimming the roses. What's up? We have had another case you might be interested in. I think you might want to come see this for yourself. Alright, give me the address and I will meet you there in 30 minutes. Mitchell placed the phone back in the cradle. He paused for a moment, smiled, and picked it up again. He dialed Kathy's cell phone number. After a familiar series of tones, he heard her pick the phone up. Hi sweetheart. Is everything okay? I got a call from Gerald. There's been another case. He wants me to come take a look. I might not be back in time for supper. Go ahead and eat and I will get something when I get in. What are we having by the way? Your favorite. Fried catfish with wild rice. You know I love your catfish. You know how to hurt a guy, don't you, my love? I'll see if I can manage to save you a plate, Kathy quipped. Kathy was an excellent cook. They had met during Mitchell's residency at Albert Einstein in Philadelphia. Kathy was tall at 5 feet 9 inches, and she had won a full-track scholarship to the University of Southern California. As a matter of fact, she was the captain of the women's track team as well as a starting guard for the basketball team. She was strikingly beautiful and had a laugh that won Mitchell's heart. I'll try to be back before too long. Okay, sweetheart. I'll be home soon. Mitchell hung the phone up and headed back toward his meditation room. He walked toward the far wall and paused for a moment. He removed a large bronze medallion that hung on a thick, black leather cord. The medallion was covered in a series of raised arcane letters that seemed to pulse with power. He held the medallion in his hands briefly and whispered a word of power over it as he gently rubbed the letters. The medallion began to sparkle with a shimmering blue light. The glow quickly subsided and Mitchell placed the medallion cord around his neck and hit the object under his shirt. He walked out of the meditation room, grabbed his jacket, quickly scribbled the address that Gerald had given him on a scrap of paper, and headed toward the garage. Chapter 2 Thomas Thomas Morton was a wealthy man by any standard. Tax law was a lucrative business and in his profession, he was considered the best. His wife, Patricia, was a former beauty queen who had been a finalist in the Miss Argentina pageant. His two sons were both star athletes and honor students. They lived in a 65,000-square-foot mansion overlooking a 200-acre estate in the outer regions of Guilford County. Thomas was one of the founding partners of his law firm and if he had to imagine his life being any better, he probably couldn't do it. He couldn't understand why he had just shot his two sons to death with the model 1908 Manlicher Schonauer carbine sniper rifle that his grandfather had given him two years before. The boys never knew what hit them. Both boys had died instantly, one shot each, right through the temple. Thomas was ranked marksman first class at the local shooting clubs. He had taught the boys how to handle firearms as well. He watched the boys playing in the yard for more than an hour before the thought hit him. He wasn't angry. He hadn't been drinking. The thought of killing them had come spontaneously and it was just that, a plain, simple, ordinary thought. He knew that Patricia wouldn't understand. He knew that she was probably aware of his dalliances with his new junior associate. She was a smart woman. She allowed him the luxury of an occasional affair in exchange for the life that he had given her. At least, that was the way that he saw it. Not that the affair had anything to do with what he had just done. 
Thomas walked over to the bodies and calmly fired two rounds into the chest cavity of each boy. He then reached down and tenderly kissed each of his sons on the forehead. Their skin was still warm and the ruddy color had not yet left their cheeks. Thomas placed the man lecture onto the ground next to the boys. He then pulled a Ruger GP 100.38 caliber revolver from his coat pocket. He checked the chamber and placed three rounds into the gun. He placed the pistol against his temple, pulled the trigger, and slumped to the ground. High overhead, a gray misty form glowed red for a moment, descended over the forms of the three dead humans, and gradually disappeared into the corpses. After a few moments, it re-emerged. Its color had now become a bright crimson red. The crimson entity rapidly ascended into the afternoon sky and vanished over the horizon. Chapter 3 The Journey Melvina didn't remember a forest beyond the Colosseum. She hadn't been given much opportunity to see her surroundings from the floor of the cart on which she and her sister had ridden in. She could clearly remember the cries of the youngest children. They would be useless on the open market and even the most brazen magistrate saw no sport in placing them in the arena. Most of them were probably sold into harems. The unlucky ones went to the southern carrot tribes. She remembered her parents telling stories about the elaborate feast the carrot people prepared that featured heaping mounds of cured human flesh, vegetables, and fruit. They preferred the flesh of young children, so she heard. She now had much larger problems to occupy her mind. She was very sure that she was dead. She had personally slid Sava's throat and had been splattered with bright spurts of her blood in the process. She was certain that her blow to Sava's throat had been fatal. But some unsettling questions remained unanswered. She felt very much alive. Sava hadn't stopped whimpering for more than an hour. Melvina reasoned, can a dead girl whimper? Why would she? What would be the point? Sava looked down at her feet as they walked on a pebble-strewn trail through the forest. She didn't mind the walk so much as she did the hunger that raged through her body. She didn't care if she was dead. She was still hungry and, for the most part, that was the most important thought in her mind. Sava's eyes had turned red from hours of crying. She looked at her sister and shouted, I'm hungry. What do you want me to do about it? I'm hungry too. Melvina replied. Where are we going? I'm tired. Can we stop for a while? Sava complained. I don't know where we're going. I just want to get as far away from that place as possible. Sava stopped abruptly and sat cross-legged on the ground. She threw her head back and let out a loud shriek. If we're dead, why do my feet hurt so much? Why am I so hungry? None of this makes any sense. I don't have any answers for you, sister. I just know that crying and complaining aren't going to help. We're dead. I killed you. Those bastards killed me back at that horrible place. I don't understand why we're here now. I thought we were supposed to be with the gods. Melvina's questions were not meant so much to answer Sava's concerns as to help her sort out their situation. Where are our parents? Sava asked. You assume that they have died, Melvina replied. What else would the soldiers have done to them? Asked Sava. We have rested long enough. Let's find somewhere to sleep and then we can find someone to help us, Melvina said sharply. 
Shaking her head as if trying to make Sava's questions go away, Melvina struggled to sound as reassuring as she possibly could. She had no idea if anyone else existed within a day's walk of where they were. Sava grudgingly rose to her feet and walked toward her sister. After giving each other a half-hearted hug, they both began to walk back toward the pebble-strewn trail. They walked for what seemed like hours without saying much of anything. Sava complained about the cold. Melvina reminded her that dead girls don't feel cold. Sava showed her the goosebumps on her arms. Melvina spotted a fire in a clearing just a short distance down the road. Sava saw it too. They both looked at each other with a sigh of relief. What do you think, sister? Sava asked. What do we have to lose? Melvina replied. The two girls quickened their pace and soon reached the source of the fire. In a small clearing set a small distance from the path they saw a simple thatch hut. The hut was surrounded by six large dogs. The animals appeared to be asleep and did not stir as the girls approached. The animals had shiny black mayonnaise spotted with bits of blood and tissue from some unnamed prey. Their glistening fangs hung from their mouths, rising and falling with the rhythm of their slumber. Their sleepy growls seemed to add an ominous tone to the air. Just in front of the hut, the two girls spotted an old man. He sat quietly and did not stir as they approached. He wore a simple green robe that covered his body completely. He was bald and was perhaps the oldest person they had ever seen. His eyes were sunken and dark. Large wrinkles lined his face and deep circles rimmed his eyes. His skin was the color of pale moonlight before storm. His hands were wizened and the skin hung from his arms like the leaves of an ancient willow. The only ornamentation on his body was a large, brilliant red stone that he wore on a pendant that hung from his neck. The two girls stopped to warm themselves by the fire. The dogs did not move, neither did the old man. The girls looked at each other, glanced at the dogs, and decided to sit down as they continued to warm themselves. As far as they could tell, death gave certain freedoms not normally available to young girls traveling alone in the wilderness. The old man still did not move. He did not look at them. His eyes remained steadfast upon the fire. The girls glanced at him from time to time but said nothing. After a while, the man closed his eyes and began to sing softly to himself. The girls could not make out the words to the song, but the sound was beautiful. One by one, the dogs began to awaken. They quickly encircled the fire and, before they could move, the girls were surrounded. The old man continued his song. As he sang, the dogs glared fiercely at the two girls. The dogs did not approach them, but they did not need to. Their message was clear. Abruptly, the old man interrupted his song. He rose without speaking, glanced at the two girls, smiled a wide, toothless grin, and motioned for them to follow. As he moved, the dogs parted silently in response to his gesture. The girls followed him into the house. The dogs followed the three of them to the door. After the old man, Sava, and Melvina had entered the hut, the dogs stationed themselves in front of the door. The old man closed the door behind them. The dogs quickly fell asleep. Chapter 4 The Case Thomas Morton's home was magnificent by any standard. Built in 1849, the mansion had 297 rooms, 112 fireplaces, 32 kitchens, 26 baths, 17 staircases and over an acre of roof. 
The design of the home was strikingly similar to Chatsworth, the 17th-century Derbyshire resident of the Duke and Duchess of Devonshire. Greensboro, North Carolina was a long way from Devonshire, England. Thomas Morton's intention in building the largest house in Guilford County was to remind all who entered that he was descended from royalty. The mansion sat on the edge of a wide oak forest. Morton found battling the elements in the country far more amusing than battling traffic in the city. The children had never wanted for anything in their lives. Each space in the home was designed to recreate the grand design of an English Tudor summer residence. The few neighbors that the Mortons had never suspected that the family would be the subject of the evening news, at least, not for this reason. Mitchell drove past the large oak fence that draped the front lawn of the estate. The police had set up a perimeter around the entrance and he flashed his police consultant badge for the young officer on duty. The officer checked the badge studiously, nodded, and motioned to the senior officer in charge of the grounds to allow the Alpine Green Convertible Jaguar to pass. Mitchell paused for a moment to lower the roof of the vehicle and parked a few yards beyond the outer edge of the perimeter. He never had much chance to enjoy riding in the Jaguar with the top down. The ride out to the scene seemed like the perfect opportunity. He knew, however, that any minute now, Gerald would spot his car and demand the remainder of his attention. Mitchell removed the large medallion from his shirt, placed it over his chest, and closed his eyes. His breathing became deep and slow. After a few moments, a large ball of blue light emerged from his forehead and floated through the ceiling of the Jaguar. Mitchell took care to utter a quick word of obscuration over the ball as it left his mind. The blue sphere floated high into the sky over the mansion. Even though Mitchell remained safely in the car, the sphere greatly extended his sensory perceptions. He could see the entirety of the estate from the vantage point of the sphere as easily as he could with a satellite orbiting from space. The sphere offered immediate access to information related to smell, taste, hearing, sight, touch, and a host of other extrasensory perceptive data streams. Almost immediately, he picked up an unusual scent. The odor was oddly metallic, somewhat foul, not unlike meat that has been sitting too long on a kitchen counter. There was also something more, a sweet, sickening, flowery odor that cloaked the stronger foul odor. Extending his senses slightly, he saw the faint outline of a gray-red cloud. Mitchell knew that he was dealing with a murder scene. The perimeter tape, the number of cars, and the medium blackout were standard procedure for crimes of this nature, especially in this neighborhood. Curiously, he had not seen any evidence of the victim's soul forms wandering around the grounds. Shortly after a violent death, the vast majority of souls wander around for days before fully comprehending what has happened to them. Before he could investigate further, he spotted Gerald walking briskly toward the Jaguar. Mitchell was immediately jolted out of his meditative state. He muttered a word of dissolution and the ball instantly vanished. He looked toward the car window and saw Gerald's smiling face. He knew that he would need to be more careful with his practices around his inquisitive friend. When are you going to let me take this baby for a spin? Gerald had always admired a good racing vehicle. You have a standing invitation my friend. Anytime you wish. One day, when I get some time, I will take you up on that, Gerald replied. Detective Sergeant Gerald Holmes was a tall man. He stood just slightly over six feet six inches tall. 
Gerald had played basketball for the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill for three years during his college days. He never started for the team but was a valuable six-man at the left-forward position. He loved playing the game, even after his knee decided to give up the sport and shatter in two places during an off-campus pickup game. Following two surgeries, rehab, and extensive training, he was never able to regain his playing form. He enlisted in the Navy after college and specialized in military intelligence. After 24 years of duty, six tours in special ops, and three decorations for service during highly classified field operations, he met the woman of his dreams and retired from the Navy. His parents both lived in the Greensboro area and he decided to move back home to raise his young family. His children, Tammy and Nicholas, both attended high school at Grimsley. Gerald had an easy smile and a calm, good-natured manner. People liked him and that made doing his job that much easier. His men respected his judgment, though some of them wondered why he frequently recruited a retired psychiatrist as a consultant on certain murder cases. The two men had been good friends for more than 25 years. So what happened here, Gerald? This is another strange one, Mitch. Walk with me while I fill you in. Gerald led Mitchell down the long, winding garden pathway that encircled the Morton estate. The grounds were tended by a small retinue of full-time gardeners who had formerly been employed by a now-deposed South American military leader. During this time of year, the gardens were alive with lavender rose bushes, pink and white dogwood blossoms, and blazing yellow tulips. Mitchell stopped briefly to admire the sculptures that lined the garden perimeter. He recognized the large replica of the Marcus Aurelius statue that faced the main entry to the home. Twenty yards away, he was certain that he spotted a replica of the Farnese bull. The three graceful figures grappling with the majestic bull atop the beige and gray marble piece seemed to come alive as they passed. We have here the home of Mr. Thomas Morton. He was a very wealthy businessman, attorney, age 54, married 21 years, two children, both boys. From what we have been able to piece together, Mr. Morton was a collector of antique weapons. So far, we have found over 300 different artifacts, all catalogued on his hard drive and labeled according to age, date of acquisition, and country of origin. He used a model 1908 Mannlicher Schonauer carbine sniper rifle to kill the two boys. He used a .38 on himself. The security tapes show him killing the two boys and then himself. Gerald pointed to the three body bags lying in the grass some 50 yards away. Two heavily armed SWAT team members stood near to the bodies, while one crime scene investigator hovered over the grassy area near the bodies. The really strange thing is, he had no history of violence. No domestic calls of any kind came up on the board. No history of drinking or drugs. As far as we can tell, this was a model family. That's why I called you. Did Mr. Morton have any history of psychiatric illness? Mitchell asked. Not that we could find. You know these people, so secretive, but nothing on that end either. Has anyone questioned his wife? We were kinda hoping you would do the honors, Doc, Gerald said, grinning. He slapped Mitchell gently on the back and led him through the entrance of the home. A coffered ceiling with golden rosettes crowned the entrance to the great hall of the home. A number of 19th-century French pieces, including a bull marquetry table, lined the hallway that led into the main room. 
a Louis XVI-style console stood majestically against the wall adjacent to the main stairwell. Six framed antique Ottoman manuscripts lined the walls above the console. Mrs. Morton sat in the corner of the reception room just left of the main stairwell. She sat on a 19th-century gilt armchair that had originally been crafted for the Egyptian Khadivial family. On the writing table just in front of her sat a subject terracotta bowl. Mrs. Morton rose to meet the two men as they approached. She was a stunning woman. Standing at almost six feet tall, her hair was long, thick, and dark, with curly locks draping the ends that hung by her shoulders. Her skin was dark and tanned. She wore a simple Masoni wedge maroon tunic top with a white mid-length skirt. Patricia Morton had twice been a finalist in the Miss Argentina pageant. In her last competition, she had been first runner-up. Thomas Morton had met her during a business trip to Argentina. He had taken her to see Yazoo Falls on their first date. Even though she had grown up in Argentina, she had never once seen the Yazoo Falls. Mrs. Morton's face was distraught. Her dark brown eyes rimmed with tears even as she attempted to remain the cordial hostess. While she'd been away shopping in Winston-Salem with friends, she'd lost her husband and two children. Her world had been instantly shattered forever for no apparent reason. Mitchell opened his vision slightly so that he could examine Mrs. Morton more closely. Her aura was large, perhaps 10 to 12 feet across. The main color was green, though the interior and middle regions were filled with bright yellow and gold inclusions. Deep red and gray clouds lined the perimeter of the aura. The green color meant that she loved people, was very social, and would likely be quite a good teacher. The yellow color defined a soul that was a highly intelligent woman who was full of life and optimistic. The gold color pointed to some latent psychic and spiritual gifts that lay dormant within her subconscious. With the advent of the recent traumas, Mrs. Morton had little hope of fully realizing those gifts during this lifetime. The deep red and gray clouds on the aura's perimeter most likely represented the emotional trauma and shock that accompanied the news that she had just received. As far as Mitchell could determine, Mrs. Morton was a beautiful and gifted soul who was genuinely in shock. Mrs. Morton, my name is Detective Sergeant Gerald Holmes. I will be in charge of the investigation. This is my colleague, Dr. Mitchell Gibson. He is a psychiatric police consultant that I have called in to help me on the case. Gerald and Mitchell in turn extended their hands to Mrs. Morton. She shook them lightly and returned to her chair. As she sat, an attendant entered the room and placed a Bradford tea service down on the writing table. The attendant then quietly placed three rose porcelain tea cups on the table. As quickly as she entered, she left the room without making a sound. Thank you for coming, Detective, Doctor. Will you take some tea? Mrs. Morton was ever the perfect hostess, even under these phenomenally trying circumstances. Years of parties, state dinners, and official gatherings had honed her instincts to exquisite perfection. Thank you, ma'am. I think I will, Gerald answered. I will as well, Mitchell replied. Tell us, Mrs. Morton, had you noticed anything unusual about your husband's behavior over the past few weeks? Anything out of the ordinary that might help us figure out why this happened? Mitchell asked. Mrs. Morton sat back in her chair, closed her eyes briefly, sighed for a moment, and looked intently at Mitchell. We were very happy. Don't get me wrong, we argued from time to time, all couples do. 
But we loved each other and Thomas would never do anything like this. He was a good man. Something is wrong with all this. He loved his boys more than life itself. I just don't understand. We will do everything we can to get to the bottom of this, Mrs. Morton. Did your husband have any enemies? Anyone who might want to do him harm? Gerald asked. I tried to keep out of my husband's business affairs. This house, our homes, our charities, our children, keep me quite busy. I just checked our main accounts, we were fine. My husband was a man of great integrity, detective. If he had enemies, they were only those who envied him. He would never intentionally hurt another person. He was a good man. Mrs. Morton's eyes began to fill with tears as she tried to compose herself. She pulled a tissue from the silver container on the writing table in front of her and wiped her eyes quickly. We will try to be brief, Mrs. Morton. We appreciate your patience. Do you know if your husband had ever been treated for depression? Mitchell asked. Mrs. Morton smiled thinly, sighed again, and took a long sip of tea. As she spoke, the outer perimeter of her aura flashed soft tufts of brown and gray. A few years ago, my husband lost a big case. Some company in Miami, I believe. They tried to sue my husband for negligence but they were unsuccessful. The whole thing went on for several years and I could tell it was very taxing for him. He had trouble sleeping and difficulty focusing on his work. He saw a counselor, a friend of ours, for a few sessions. The company eventually dropped the suit but I could tell that the whole thing took a toll on my husband. How long ago did you say that was? Gerald asked. About five years ago, if I remember correctly. Anything else that you can recall that might have upset him more recently? Another suit perhaps? Mitchell asked. No, nothing. As a matter of fact, business has been great. Gerald, I think we are done here. I think so too, Gerald replied. Mrs. Morton, we will be going now. Again, thank you for your time. I want to extend my condolences to you and your family. Gerald extended his hand to Mrs. Morton. This time, however, she stepped forward to hug him. As she hugged him, she burst into a torrent of tears. The attendant walked into the room and placed her arms around Mrs. Morton's shoulders. The two women backed away from the detective and the attendant led Mrs. Morton away from the reception area. I hate this part of my job, Mitch, Gerald said, shaking his head sadly. From what I can see, my friend, this is a murder-suicide case with no easy answers, Mitchell replied. I just don't know why a man with everything would blow it all in one fell swoop for no reason, Gerald said. In many suicides, we never find out what triggered the final event. You know that. I know, but this one seems odd to me, you know, in a funny sort of way. I don't think this thing is as cut and dried as it seems, Gerald replied. I don't think I can do much more here, Gerald. If you don't mind, I am going to head back into town. Let me know what the medical examiner finds when he does the autopsies, and when you get a chance, send me a copy of those security tapes. Sure thing. Hey Mitch, when are you going to go fishing with me and the boys? What about next week? Mitchell replied. You got it. Lake Norman? Fine. I'll tell Kathy. Mitchell hugged his friend and briskly walked back to the Jaguar. 
He paused briefly to allow his vision to examine the three bodies as they were being loaded into the ambulances. He visually scoured each of the forms carefully. As closely as he could determine, none of the bodies had residual soul material. Other than the dull, gray, misty traces of life force that clung to the corpses, he could see nothing. Somehow, the soul material of these three people had been stolen. A force that could do that was nothing to ignore. Mitchell knew that he would need to do a much closer investigation of this matter under more appropriate circumstances. Chapter 5 The Hut Sava didn't know what to make of the old man. He had not spoken a single word to the two girls in days. He provided food for them. It was simple fare by any measure, cooked meat with bread and wild potatoes, but considering their options, he was going far beyond any measure of civility that they had expected. He gave them a sleeping space and provided them with warm blankets and a large burlap sack filled with straw to use as a pillow. In a word, he had made them comfortable. The unsettling question that remained was, why? The girls did not leave the grounds surrounding the hut for weeks. They slept, ate, and assigned themselves simple chores around the hut to pass the time. Sava dusted, swept, and cleaned the floors, cupboards, and doors as often as she could. Melvina spotted a large pile of unwashed clothing on the floor near the back of the hut and she busied herself with the task of sorting and washing them by hand. She found a wooden basin and managed to convince the old man that she needed to fill it with water. She opened the door with the basin in hand and walked outside. The dogs parted silently as the old man stood closely behind her and motioned for them to part. The two walked silently down a long wooded path that ended in a clearing. Melvina could not identify the trees that lined the path. They were tall and broad, with large, dark trunks that bore unusual world patterns in their bark. The patterns seemed to form the vague outline of human faces, but Melvina decided that it was an illusion, simply a trick of light. The old man walked silently beside her, saying nothing. After a while, they came to the end of the clearing. Melvina saw a small creek flowing along a wide and crooked path that arched through the trees and disappeared beyond the field past the clearing. The water was clear and moved quickly along its path. Curiously, she did not hear the water as it moved. She stopped, looked at the old man, and saw that he had made himself comfortable on a nearby boulder. He was looking up at the sun, eyes wide open, without the least bit of discomfort. Melvina watched the old man for a moment as he sat cross-legged, entranced in a silent dance with the energy of the sun. She had never seen anyone look at the sun in that way. As she watched him, she saw his diminutive figure begin to glow with a reddish-golden light. The energy from the sun seemed to envelop his form and, within a few moments, she could no longer distinguish the man from the glow of energy that surrounded him. Melvina could feel the energy emanating from his form. At first, she was uncomfortable with what she was seeing. The energy, however, was another matter entirely. The reddish golden light enveloped her as she watched the old man. She did not know how, but she felt as though she were somehow being recharged with energy by the act. Broad rivulets of energy began to course through her system. The energy began its path through her body by entering her toes. The sensation was not unlike that of a warm stream of water but somehow it was stronger, much stronger. The current moved into her legs and gained momentum as it traveled through her body. When the energy reached her pelvis, she gasped aloud. 
The sensation was indescribably wonderful. She had never felt such pleasure before. In her brief time on Earth, she had not had the pleasure of being with a man in the proper way. She had seen her parents' bulls mating with the cows and once she had spotted a soldier with a young girl in the fields just beyond their home. For a moment, she recalled the incident in the arena that had led to her death. Somehow, the power of the energy that emanated from the old man seemed to wash the stain of that painful time away. Melvina dropped the basin and fell to the ground as the power began to rise to new crescendos of intensity. She closed her eyes and allowed the energy to take her. The power coursed through her pelvis and gathered strength as it roared toward her chest and stomach area. She now no longer felt the need to move or breathe. The force of the energy seemed to take over her will. Her chest expanded and filled to accommodate the force of the power being shoveled into her being. She tried to look over at the old man's form, but she could only see the reddish glow that filled the space where he once sat. She closed her eyes once again and tried to make sense of the power that coursed through every fiber of her being. After a few moments, the energy made its way to her head. Blinding flashes of blissful pain entered her skull as the energy was now moving with a speed that she did not think possible. It seemed to be attempting to communicate with her. In her mind, she saw dozens of images move past her vision in rapid succession. She could not make out any of the visions individually, but she could sense that somehow they were imparting some knowledge to her that she would come to understand. Each image lasted only fractions of a second, but one image purposefully tore itself away from the stream and leaped from her mind. She saw a ball of light floating in front of her. Within the ball, she saw the image of the old man, floating, smiling, and pointing to a flat-moving image that glowed within the ball. Melvina focused intently upon the image. She saw a succession of people involved in what could only be described as mating. She saw people, young men and women mostly, of many races and cultures. Some of the women seemed to be in ecstasy, others were barely conscious of their surroundings. Each of them, in turn, looked at her, smiled, and pointed toward her with a single finger. The image lasted for perhaps a few minutes, flickered brightly, and slowly faded in the glow of the ball. Suddenly, the intense force of the energy that erupted from the old man faded. Melvina felt paralyzed by the experience. She slowly opened her eyes and attempted to move her body. She wiggled her fingers and toes and attempted to stand. Her breath came in short gasps and her heart was racing. She managed to get to her feet after several furtive attempts. She looked around and saw the old man sitting on the boulder. His eyes were now closed and his form was no longer emblazoned with the reddish glow that she had seen earlier. The old man said nothing as he looked at her very intensely. He slowly rose from his meditative position, walked toward Melvina, picked up the basin, and placed it in her hands. He then motioned for her to go to the stream. Melvina quickly walked to the stream, filled the basin with water, and rose to return to the boulder. As she turned with the basin, she saw that the old man had already begun to walk back toward the tree-line path. She also saw that two of the dogs now trotted quietly alongside him as he walked. Melvina picked up her pace in order to catch up with the old man and the dogs. In a few moments, she caught up with them. She knew that the old man was not a normal person. She had never seen or experienced anything like what she had just gone through earlier. She wanted answers. Who are you? What do you want from us? The old man did not answer. 
He did not slow his pace. He did not look in her direction. He made no indication at all that he had heard her question. Did you hear me? Melvina demanded, raising her voice slightly. Again, the old man said nothing. He maintained his pace, did not look toward her, and continued to make no indication that he had heard her. Melvina grew impatient and decided to get his attention in the only way that she knew how. She placed the basin upon the ground, cupped her hands, and splashed a large handful of water onto the old man's robe. The old man stopped in his tracks. He turned slowly toward Melvina. He looked at her without smiling or moving his face in any way. His eyes seemed to blaze with a reddish golden light. After a few long, tense moments, he began to laugh. He reached down into the basin, cupped his hands, and launched a large handful of water back at Melvina. She was soaked in seconds. Melvina froze in her tracks. She looked at him in shock. She had not expected him to return the favor. Without thinking, she splashed him again. He splashed her right back. After a few splashes, they were both soaking wet. Melvina looked at him intently without blinking. Despite herself, she began to laugh. Deep, rolling laughter filled her body as she looked at her own clothing and that of the old man. She could not remember the last time that she laughed. She felt good, alive, in a manner of speaking. The old man looked at her, smiled, pointed his finger at her soaked clothing, and began to laugh. The sound of his laugh was sweet, yet coarse. The vibration ripped through Melvina like a bolt of lightning and her whole body shook involuntarily. What is your name? Melvina asked, after regaining her composure. My name is Anshar, the old man replied. What happened back there? W.H. What did you do to me? Melvina stammered. I gave you a reward, Anshar replied. A reward? For what? Melvina asked. Services rendered, of course. Services? What do you mean, services? You completed your mission. What mission? I don't know what you're talking about. Sava. You were charged with bringing me her soul. I must say, you discharged your duties admirably. Now go and refill the basin, you have clothes to wash. What are you talking about? I didn't bring you any soul. My sister was killed by those butchers, just like me. On the contrary, if you will recall, you dispatched her before they could kill her. By our agreement, dying by your hand gives me the right to claim her soul. I didn't kill her for you. I did what I did so that she wouldn't have to suffer. A most expedient solution. Admirably creative, Anshar replied. Anshar turned and began to walk down the path again. He chuckled quietly to himself. Melvina stood in silent horror. She could not believe the words that had just fallen upon her soul. Her mind whirled with a cacophony of confusing thoughts and images that made her nauseated. After a few moments, a single blinding thought raged through her mind. She had to get to Sava. Melvina's heart began to race and her breaths quickened. She began to run as fast as she could toward the hut. She did not think of the old man or the dogs that accompanied him. She looked back only once. She saw the old man and the dogs walking slowly, both staring intently in her direction. They did not quicken their pace in the slightest. She ran as fast as her legs could carry her. She moved faster than she ever thought possible.
She wanted to run away from this place, wherever it was, take Sava, and never return. As she ran, the trees seemed to cast long glances upon her. Their shadows trailed long, straight patterns on the trail behind her as she gradually neared the hut. The hut appeared on the horizon. Melvina saw the remaining dogs sleeping near the fire in front of the hut. She wondered if that fire ever went out. She looked back toward the trail again. Still, she saw no sign of the old man or the dogs that were with him. This gave her some small bit of relief. She slowed her pace as she neared the hut. She did not know what the dogs would do if she tried to rush into the hut without the old man. The more she thought about it, the more she realized that she should stop and walk as calmly as she could toward the door. Breathing heavily, she slowed to a brisk walk and cautiously approached the dogs by the door. The dogs did not look up. Two of them seemed to be fighting over some large, flesh-covered bones. The others were satisfying themselves with some fresh meat. None of them bothered to stop her. Melvina pushed the door open and walked into the hut, shouting for Sava. 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 We have to leave here now. The scene that greeted her as she entered the hut left her speechless. The old man sat cross-legged on the floor in front of a large plate of meat and vegetables. He did not move as Melvina entered. Two dogs sat beside him slowly munching on a pile of raw meat that had been placed before them on the floor. Melvina froze in horror. Where is Sava? The old man did not speak. After a few moments, Melvina took a deep breath and began to repeat her question. Before she could speak again, Sava walked into the house from the back entrance. Melvina, I was worried. You were gone so long, Sava said calmly. Melvina was speechless. She stared at the old man and looked back at Sava. The old man grinned at her and began to hum quietly as he ate. Melvina, come sit down and eat. Your food will get cold, Sava said. How did you get here so fast? Melvina snapped. What do you mean? He has been here with me this whole time while you were gone getting the water, Sava replied. Melvina felt her thoughts begin to spin and whirl inside her brain. She backed away from the entrance to the door and slowly stumbled toward the fire. The world around her seemed to tumble and fall away in a blur of motion and chaos too confusing to follow. In a moment, she fainted and fell to the ground, fast asleep. Chapter 6